Welcome to the Sperber Prize Podcast, a show where I'll talk to winners and nominees of Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. This season, we'll be looking at themes of sexism, ethics, technology, objectivity, and more. I'm your host, Rena Lokai. Today, I'll be speaking with award-winning journalist and author Elizabeth Becker. Becker started her career as a war correspondent for the Washington Post in Cambodia. She's been the senior foreign editor at NPR and a New York Times correspondent covering national security, economics, and foreign policy. Her book, You Don't Belong Here, tells the story of three young women. Each of them come from vastly different upbringings, but they all went to Vietnam with one dream, to report on the war going on. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. Sure. So I guess I just wanted to start with the inspiration behind your book. What made you think this is a story that needs to be told? I've I've been wanting to write this off and on forever, but I was very conflicted about what the experience of women was. I mean, as you know, having read the book, women were not acknowledged. Um, They were not only underestimated when they got there, but their work was not only not acknowledged, but often forgotten. And um, you read the memoirs, the classic memoirs that grew out of the Vietnam War by journalists, and they're by men who um, dismiss women when they even mention them. And the most talented and the most um, successful were forgotten, Frances Fitzgerald and the three women that I wrote about, largely forgotten. So you have to find the confidence to say, okay, no matter what, I'm going to jump in and figure it out. Well, this takes many years. And um, finally, by I think it's 2015, the war's over in 75, and it's only until 2015 that I look around and I say, someone has to write this book. Someone has to do this. Now, there were two sort of attempts before this, um, a collection of um, ane- memoir kind of anecdotes of nine of the uh, nine women. And then there was an encyclopedia approach to try to figure out who all the women were, but it didn't tell the story. It was, oddly enough, when I was the an expert witness at the Khmer Rouge genocide trial. And I was asked very um, provocative questions, uh, meaning not me, but just the whole female approach in a way that I said, oh, we've got to do this. I've got to do this. And um, so that's, that's what did it. And the fact that, you know, everybody was dying. And the whole point would be to write it while uh, not just, the, as many women as possible who are alive, but all the other people. Um, in fact, since the book has been um, published, almost 10 people who I interviewed have died. That's how old we are. <laughs> so that it was, I would say, the, the short answer is when I testified at the genocide trial, the long answer was it took a long time to figure out what the story was. So I also noticed as I was reading this book that it wasn't just a quick biography. It was very detailed accounts of their lives. And I was just wondering how you went about that process of finding all these small details to add to the book. 
Well, first, I had a huge advantage. I'd lived that life. So I knew what details to look for. And I can't tell you what an advantage that is. I can't exaggerate it because it's not that one is a bet that I'm just a much better researcher, but I knew what I was looking for. So um, in each instance, you have to figure out what's available. And um, I'll start with Catherine Lacroix, the French woman. I'll call her um, Kathy, which is what the Americans call her. She left a mess when she died and her friends, believe it or not, raised almost a million dollars to collect her papers and her photographs. She's the photographer in the story and create a foundation, um, which in French is Dotation. And they had a Dotation Catherine de Croix. And um, so they kindly let me, you know, just take anything I wanted. I mean, this is all digitally taken anything I wanted. An interview, um, they helped me figure out who, who to interview. I'd say, I need someone who knows this, that, and the other. And so I had great interviews. And as I said, I knew what to look for. And so piles of paper, you could you could disappear in them. But I could go through and I said, oh, I need this, that, and the other. Now, in terms of Frances Fitzgerald, she had already given her papers to Boston University. And um, even though some people had looked at it, they'd not looked at it in terms of biography. And, and that was important for me to give the full story of these women, what they wore, what they ate, who their lovers were, what they did to kill time, what they did to enjoy themselves, um, <clears throat> what they told themselves to keep themselves going. Um, and so within within um, Frankie, Francis, who's known Frankie, her stuff, again, lots of stuff from her earliest ages until um, the 1990s. And again, you sort through it until you can answer those questions. And in her case, as well as in Kathy's case, there's stuff I couldn't believe she gave to the um, library, it's stuff I wouldn't want to, I would be too too private to put in. So it was a treasure trove. And it's not like I'm so great. It's that no one else had, had looked for what I was looking for. And finally, Kate Webb. Now, um, like Kathy, she left her papers. They weren't strewn all over the place. They were just in one place, but they were a mess. And so her sister, who's very important in the book, as you as you know, um, her sister collected them and put them in plastic storage boxes, which um, I hope she gives them to a library because that's not the best way to put it. And it was vaguely organized and not vaguely organized. And when I, you know, so I flew down to Australia to obviously to go through all this. And I found stuff that her sister hadn't even noticed were important and she'd had them for 15 years. So again, and I I had known Kate in the war. I knew what to, and when I, when I found her, um, a pseudo novel she wrote I said oh my gosh this is this is her memoir <laughs> and I explained it to Rachel this is who this really is and so on and so forth so that was a huge advantage I had and and as I said I knew what I was what I was looking for so you see if you notice someone my editor said how do you know what kind of underwear she was wearing well her sister told me and so I I could put that all in and and so on and so forth so that's what is yeah, I was going to kind of say the same thing. Like, there are very minuscule details that I'm going through the book and I'm wondering how can anyone possibly know unless all three of these women kept, you know, very intense diaries. But I, I highly doubt it from. No, 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 no. No, you collect where you can. And um, 
It's like the birds that always go and pick up the little gems. Well, that's what I did. And I knew which contemporary things to look at. So I would look at what other people were doing and I would call someone who knew her then. Or, <clears throat> it's just collecting. My, I guess one of my favorite anecdotes is when Frances Fitzgerald's <clears throat> back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, writing her book. Now that's a very boring thing to write about. How do you make that interesting? And um, some letters were really fascinating about how her editors were really saying they didn't know if they wanted to write, publish the book. It was so weird. So I said, who would know what she was going through and give me some drama? Frankie was the only one alive. And I, I called up Frankie and I said, did you have a boyfriend then? And she said, yes. And she gave me the name. So I got to interview him and it was fabulous. And that's what you do. You, you know where your holes are and then you fill them in. But I wanted full, complete women. I wanted them writing. I wanted every letter that I could find that they wrote back to their families. That's the other thing that drives me crazy about memoirs <clears throat> that men write are they're often just here I am out in the field and here I am ha being cool in Saigon as if they didn't have families. My women had families. They had personalities. They had doubts. They, they're full human beings. That's another thing that really struck me as I was going through it is that if you have three women, three very different upbringings, different socioeconomic brackets, different countries, and yet they all find themselves covering the Vietnam War. And that's their passion. You know, that's what they want to do. So do you think that there is something, maybe a personality trait or something that linked them that made them similar to want to do this? Um, not personality per se, because they're very different. But <clears throat> don't underestimate the fact that Vietnam was the big story, even as early as, as when they went 66 and then Kate 68. So it's the biggest story in the world. That's very important. That's They are clearly ambitious women, but that does not distinguish them from how many other people in the world. Um, and they both, they all three... Um, had shown signs of independence very early. That does not totally distinguish them. And they also had reasons pushing them out of their country. Kate's was the tragedy of the, the her friend who committed suicide in front of her and her parents dying. Frankie was most immediately the, um, the end of a, a, an affair, but also her um, frustration that as a writer, a journalist, there was nothing, there was nothing on offer in the United States, because as she was told, as they were all told, women were foreign correspondents, they weren't even serious journalists. She went to Newsweek and they, they said, you, you're only qualified to be a researcher. Catherine, hers was the most obvious rebel background. She was a pianist, a prodigy, and because she couldn't start on the big stage right away, she quit. And then to, for for adventure, she took a dare and learned how to jump out of out of airplanes on, with parachutes, and then she fell in love with the photographs of Perry Match from Vietnam. So you can read them and you can see these women from the very beginning were special women, and I let the story say that. I didn't have to say that. You read it and you read their stories and you said, oh, "Yeah, the, Kathy." Kathy's special for this. Frankie was also a prodigy, um, a bit of a loner because of her very, um, very, very wealthy family background. And then Kate, because of the tragedies. 
So speaking of their differences and similarities and stuff, as you were writing this and seeing like deeply these women and learning these women deeply, did you find that you were relating personally to one more than other or that um, you saw yourself in, in one or any of them? Oh, no. You jump inside the skin of each. I didn't exist. I You jump into the only way to do this. Is you have to jump inside the skin. And every once in a while, like Katrine would do something crazy and I go, oh, my God. But then I couldn't wait to write it down. I mean, <clears throat> because I was I followed them X number of years later, I knew what they were going through. And in that sense, it's not that I identified with them. I knew intimately what they were talking about. So that's that helped me draw the scene better. Like when Kate goes to Cambodia and she she sets up the bureau in Phnom Penh. That was the easiest scene to do, the the location, the people, because I knew it. So did I think I was like, like Kate? No. But could I walk in her shoes and get inside her skin? Yes, because I went through that. And in Saigon, um, similarly, it's like, yes, I know what it's like to send out an article and not know if it's going to be uh, picked up. And yes, I know what it's like to be in a, um, try to, cover a firefight and be frightened the way um, Kathy always was. I didn't have to identify with them per se. And I <clears throat> I didn't choose which one I liked best because they were so different. I just marveled at how amazing they were. So even though these were talented women who produced amazing journalistic work, they were still at a disadvantage because they were women and they were discriminated against because they were women. But you also talk in your book a little about how they used that womanhood and their gender to their advantage in a sense. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That was such a double-edged sword that advantage is maybe not the right word. Um, very quickly, they learned that they did not need all that attention. Kate in particular had had ways to avoid. You, you don't want um, men, as I say, without going into too detail, men knocking on your door and asking if you're lonely. You, you wanted to avoid that. I think the male colleagues at times enjoyed being with a Western woman just as a friend. For, I'm putting the sex aside because that's that's that was such a double-edged sword. But I mean, that made people um, have better with us. But mostly with as a reporter, we don't, we were not frightening. We're not big, big Western men. We were much more sympathetic, just looking at us. And then the behavior was such that people tended to open up more. And then, as I say about the whole approach, the three women were all outsiders. They were not trained to report or photograph the way that the other people did. So they automatically adopted their own style. And Coincidentally, but I don't think accidentally, that style was a broader style. They saw the whole country. They didn't just see the war. And they saw the people as the important part of the story, the Vietnamese, the Cambodians, the Lao. And so that's why their work stood out. And I, I really went out of my way to compare them to what was being written by their colleagues at the time. And I was astonished at how really radical they were. I mean, Frankie in particular, because she wrote in long form. And I talked to experts on photography. That's why Kathy took these pictures that 
you know, you look at the same people covering the, the war and she's got the pictures that are intimate and she goes close up to the soldiers or to the refugees. She had this um, mantra, get a, you have to be able to photograph the eyes. So the advantage of being a woman was you're a, a much more welcome figure. And these women also had a broader and more approachable style. And they um, they tended to spend a lot of more time with people. I mean, Kate was famous for getting to know people so well that they thought she might be a spy. She was she got to know them so well. And um, and Frankie just her articles were so long. I, she, there's no other magazine reporter other than for um, the weekly news magazines, Time and Newsweek. They came after Frankie. So you just mentioned that these women were able to offer new and fresh perspectives in their works. And yet male journalists around them tried tirelessly to get rid of them, even after knowing the quality of work that they were producing. So why do you think that they tried so hard to get rid of women in Vietnam? It was especially after they were so successful that they didn't want them there. Uh, because the presumption was this was a lark for them. They, that's why they called them vagabonds, that they'd come and go. They didn't expect them to stay. And not only did they stay, they become true competitors. And in the male mind, as I have them, I quote them saying, wars fought by men and, and covered by men and women didn't belong there. And they, they, they truly meant it. So that's why, for instance, the cabal of journalists and public affairs officers tried to get rid of Kathy Leroy, the photographer, why Kate was told that, of course, UPI wouldn't hire her because she's a woman. She, the only person who would give her credentials was the only woman editor. And Frankie was just treated as a, you know, as a, as a dilettante, a wealthy former debutante that you could say, oh, she's got a lot of money. She's just coming and writing whatever she's doing. And if, if she writes anything good, it's because her father's a high upper in, in CIA. So the narrative was, in their mind, these women are, they're, they're not essential, they're not critical. And when they did become, you have the, that move to diminish and um, you know, ridicule a lot of what they did. A little earlier, you mentioned Kathy's photographs and how she has her own unique style and how she really captures things that maybe others didn't. Is there a specific photo that is your favorite that you love? Oh no! I mean, there's so many that are great. Her her most famous, of course, is the medic on the hill, the the series. You have to love that. I love the one where she she spent so much time in the field that um, she had photographs of soldiers. She never wanted just heroic stuff. She wanted real stuff. So you see them um, bored, um, smoking cigarettes and. Then you see them uh, praying with a pastor in the middle of the jungle. And then you see them all of a sudden alert. And those are closer to my sense of the way a soldier is than any other series I've seen. And as I said, she had to get close to their eyes. And she's, just, she's so small, barely five feet, barely 100 pounds, that she was almost like an acrobat. And she could maneuver, even, and, and she was fearless in that sense. If she had to, she'd get on the ground. She could move anywhere and take these photographs from from angles that just were new. So. Do you, did you have um, a favorite scene that 
you loved as you were writing? Because I know while I was reading, I think my favorite part reading it was when Kate Webb was kidnapped or she yeah, captured and how everyone expected her to be dead. And then all of a sudden she's alive and well. And that whole section of the book, I it was just so suspenseful and her coming back was so beautiful. So I was wondering, do you have a favorite part of your book that you like love to talk about and write about? Um, well, <clears throat> as an author, I have favorite parts for very different reasons. I love the beginning where Kathy's jumping out of an airplane. That is stunning. No other journalist did that in the whole war. No one. And she left enough clues so I could reconstruct that. And I was very proud of the reconstruction. So I know what it took for me to write that. In Frankie, I think it's finding um, her story about the hospital and how all the other reporters would go back to Saigon with the story of a battle. And she went back to, she went to a hospital to see how the civilians were being treated. That was a real thing. And then something that where only Kathy was involved, but finally figuring out how the women were able to break through the glass ceiling and permanently win women's rights to cover a battle. And that was key to the whole book. I wanted to prove not only that they were brilliant writers, but they were the ones who forever made it possible for women to cover a battlefield. Before that, women, they could be war correspondents, but the American military and most major um, Western militaries and a lot of Asians did not let them on the battlefield. So Martha Gellhorn, everybody knows her from World War II. Well, she was not allowed to be with the Americans or any of the allies on the battlefield. If she ever got on one, she had to sneak on and then she was immediately taken off. So these women are the bridge. Before them, women were forbidden. After them, women were allowed. And so I had to reconstruct that moment when General Westmoreland found Denby Fawcett in the field and had to come to grips with all the reasons why he couldn't forbid the women because if he did, he'd have to change all the journalism rules for that war. And that was that was a big deal for me. And then I guess the next, the last one, and I won't bore you with any more, was I was really worried about the ending. Oh, that's the other thing. It's not the scene, but really critical was that you would learn the Vietnam War through these women. So I had to figure out how to weave the war in and be chronologically true through all of this. That was very hard. That was the other fun part was when I found that the day Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, went into President Lyndon Johnson and said, this war can't be won. And Johnson decided right then and there to get rid of him. That was the very day that Catherine Lois was injured back in Vietnam. So I had to keep doing that all through. So that was, that was really tough, but very proud of that. So the end, I was thrilled when I finally put all the pieces together and realized that every single one of those women went back when they realized the war was ending. It's unbelievable because so many journalists, I mean, the vast, vast majority didn't. And so Frankie got the visa to Hanoi. So she was there just as the, um, the, the big final North Vietnamese push started, although she didn't know that was what was happening, but she was there. Kate 
convinced United Press International to let her go to the evacuation. And she was there when the ambassador and everybody else was evacuated onto the ship. And then Katrin was covering the Middle East and she flew back to Saigon. She said, I'm putting that on hold, flew back to Saigon and was there when the Vietnamese tank went through. I couldn't have made that up. I loved that. I, I did notice that because as I was reading, I didn't know much about the Vietnam War. I learned so much from it. But the thing is that no one's path was, you know, there at the same time. They If they intersected, it was very, very like short periods of time. So for them to come together at the end when this one or maybe more of them said, you know, we're not going back until it it's ending. It just seemed like the perfect, perfect ending for it. Yeah. Well, I didn't know it was there until I finally put it all together. <laughs> so last question that I want to ask, is there any lesson or anything that you want future women journalists to take out of this book? I've been asked that and I have to admit that I'm not a lessons learned kind of person on that score. Um, well, f- the main thing was that this history hadn't been written. So I wanted you to know who the foremothers were that there were more that, you know, you didn't have to jump from Martha Gellhorn to Christiane Amanpour. There were women in between and they were crucial. And if you saw how that they did it, I should think you'd be inspired. And I'm not into X and Y chromosomes, but the way women are raised was not that big of a hindrance to them because it instilled in them some some characteristics that the men did not have. So that I think is quite clear. And to show that um, this is a different era, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a woman's voice there and now it's available. I just spoke at a, a conference in New Jersey of high school teachers who teach, teach the Vietnam War, either in segments or in entire course. And they surprised me by saying, we've been looking for the woman's voice for this war. So it, it's automatic, I think. You you know you want that voice and um, and you want a journalist view that's bigger. So many of the memoirs are, they're wonderful, they're full of narrative, but you don't get the war out of it. So I suppose that's also part of it. I just want them to see that there these women existed. They're part of a very small cohort that forever broke the glass ceiling that showed a very different way to cover the war. And I think in a general way, that the more voices, the better. So these are, this is particular, this is women, but it, it can be for all the other kinds of voices you can have. It's not just by gender. Do you think that women journalists have any more glass ceilings to break through? Cause this is, you know, we're now oh, 50 years, I guess, after the Vietnam War almost. Do you think we have any more first or glass ceilings that we have to break? I don't know if I don't know if I I would look in that direction. I think women journalists have a big problem, and that's they have to help save journalism. That's the issue I think they should be looking at. How do I save journalism? Do I go local and help revive local journalism around this country? Do I go and try to raise money so I can do public um, support for um, journalism. I mean, I think women, the ambitious women now would be smart to try to start saving stuff because it's, it's being taken back. It's, it's, it's not a great shape. All right. Well, thank you very much. And it was an incredible book. It was absolutely 
astonishing. So thank you very much. Well, and and I guess that's the final thing is that these are people who aren't known. I mean, there are a lot of great books, but the people are already known. Another book on Martha Gellhorn, you know, it's like, no, uh, it's nothing against another book or another book on whatever, but these were not known. And um, that's what um, was a big motivation that should inspire. Do you have any other projects that are coming about maybe people who are unknown? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of project and I'm going to go do some research now. Okay. But anyway, you do a good job. You, you save journalism. Tune in next week to continue this historical journalism conversation when we talk to Vincent Kiernan and his book about World War II science journalist William Lawrence. Special thanks to today's guest, Elizabeth Becker, to Fordham University, and to the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. I'm your host, Rena Lokai, and thanks for listening. <laughs>